You know, um, as one studies scripture, the real goal is to wind up at the foot of the full cross and at the entrance to the empty tomb, staring eastward with the expectation that Jesus is coming back. But I do, as I study scripture, try to try to think about what it's like to stand in the shoes of the people who are engaging with God, the people whose stories we're seeing unfold here. And I tried to think what it was like uh, to, 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 to lose a husband. Thank God I have no idea what that's like for several reasons. But what's it like maybe to, to lose um, a spouse, a wife? Thank God I don't have any experience in that. Some people in the room do. What would it be like to lose a spouse and both children? Wow. Can you, you know, as, as, a, as a husband and father of two, you know, that's easy math for me. Um, I, can, I can think through that. But I can only sympathize with Naomi. I can feel for her. I can't feel with her in this regard. I don't know exactly what's that like, what's that, what that is like. So I tried to think about a time in my life when I felt utterly in despair. And to make a long story short, I had gotten in a ton of legal trouble. Um, most of it was of my own making, the vast majority of it. I had myself to blame. I had ruined my military career. You know, I, was, I wasn't forced off active duty, but uh, I was, my re-enrollment, my my new four-year term was disavowed, and I was put into the guard, which was crushing to me because I always thought, you know, that, you know, that was going to be my career, right? And I'd retire from that and do something else if I, if I lived through it, which, you know, no guarantee of that, that trade. And so I came home feeling pretty much like an utter failure. You wouldn't have known if you run into me at Roses or something, you know, I, I didn't give it up outwardly. I wasn't, I wasn't being fake. I just was wrestling more in, internally than I was externally. And I, I couldn't get a job because I'm suddenly a, a convicted felon with a failed military career, two big strikes in the employment world, especially under the reasons. Because people say, well, why did you, you know, what happened there? And I, I was really stupid. I told them the exact truth of what, what brought it all about, my failures. And so it was hard to get a job. I was really thankful finding the Atlanta job in Plymouth, North Carolina. And if you, if you know anything, that's about, um, it's about a, a fourth of the way between Williamston, North Carolina, and um, Nags Head. You know, out there you start getting the swampy country on Highway 64. And I wound up renting this little garage apartment. And uh, I was working about 14 hours a day, which was honestly really good for me at the time. The money was good. I owed a lot of legal fees. And on top of that, uh, the longer I worked each day, the less I drank at night. Because um, all I would do was work, and then I'd sit and think and drink. And if you're thinking and drinking, and you happen to be a country music songwriter, you'll do fine. <laughs> Pretty much the only occupation. You know, short career because you'll burn out and die of alcoholism. But if you're not a country music songwriter, drinking and thinking... That's a sad combo. That's a very sad combo. It doesn't lead anywhere good. And so I came to a couple of conclusions during that time. 
One of them was, all I'm going to do over the next few decades is eat and exist. I'll not have a career. Who would want to have a family with me? You know, who would, who would want to try to build a future with me? There was no opportunity for advancement except in illegal activities. And so I thought, eat, drink, and be merry. For some decade, surely I'll die. The second conclusion was, I must be a toxic person. And I don't even want anybody close to this reality. I don't want to draw anybody into this reality and have them share it with me. And it led to some pretty dark months of living, if anybody can relate. Now, I was very blessed that I never got down because, you know, I always, I always say, you know, uh, it, you know, depression and worry are both for intelligent people who can actually think about how bad it could be. I was pretty simple-minded, and so I just did a lot of thinking, did a lot of drinking. And the more I drank, the less I thanked. So I wanted to be a, less of a thanker, so I became more of a, a drinker. And that's what became my life. I got out of that upstairs apartment, and I went to a pool hall, because there's nothing that will fix life's problems like drinking away your paycheck every night while playing pool and jukeboxes and dancing with women 20 years older than you. What a life. Then I met Care. And I'm a sucker for a nice girl, and she's a nice girl, so I'm a sucker. But I found somebody who could tolerate me. I don't know why. But, and I began to have a little more joy and, and a little higher outlook on life. But when it really changed for me is when I met Jesus. And I, through the blood of Jesus, was able to put away my own past, and I stopped worrying about what y'all thought about it, just completely. I sort of resigned myself to say that if all I ever do is eat, drink, and be merry in Christ, give me every decade that will be useful to Jesus. I'd found hope, and hope is a hard thing to kill. Hope is a hard thing to kill. As we pick up our story, my brother last week did not listen to the sermon. He's a dirty, rotten sinner. Just ask him, he'll tell you. He says, how could you stop at verse 5? He says, I just sat back there and read through the whole book, and I probably will next week too. So, David, have fun. Everybody else listen to the sermon, okay? Read through Ruth when we're done, okay? But if we could pick up in the story in Ruth chapter 1, verse number 6, I want you guys to know as you find your place that I think our main idea tonight is the amazing grace of God has the potential to move us from despair to, di to, re to direction. In other words, there's some room for hope, even in the middle of despair. Let's pick up in the story in verse number six. You guys remember, the story has been painted. They moved to a foreign land. The boys have married foreign women. The fathers died. The sons have died. And now we got three widows down in the wash pot. Let's see what happens on this week in as the Ruth turns. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them 
food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with uh, the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No! We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return out to your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Father, as we have opened this word, open it to us. It's easy to recall the story, but show us your fingerprints. Show us your face. Let us hear from you. Father, help us to see the garden you are building from whence the tender root of Jesse will spring. And let us rejoice in our Redeemer, who indeed is the wellspring of our souls. In Jesus, I pray, amen and amen. Three big thoughts tonight. A couple will be pretty fast. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Uh, when I do that second point so fast, you think, wow, we are going to beat everyone to Torero's. Psych. At that moment, just say to yourself, psych, because uh, number three is a biggie. First big thought is this. God meets three widows in their situation of grief and despair by making them aware of his amazing available grace. See, Revelation is a big deal, and there they are in the fields of Moab, and they get a word. Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, gets a word. How does she get the word? It doesn't tell us, but word comes to her. Maybe she saw something on Twitter. Maybe one of her friends Snapchatted her. We're not sure. Hashtag fresh grain, baby. She's got word. And this verse 6, this word that Naomi gets, it really sets the tone of why a movement begins to happen in her life. It's a revelation. It's grace to hear good news. It's grace to hear good news. Didn't you know that? It's unmerited favor. Because what do we do with every possible scenario but draw up all the bad conclusions? And then good news comes along. So the first thing I want you to see to set the scene is it's grace to hear good news, but it's hard to see the grace because Naomi doesn't 
jump up and down. She doesn't launch a basket full of butterflies in celebration. She just says, well, I've heard God have visited the people. Because she realizes that no matter what, staying or going is full of implications. You ever been there? You might say, <clears throat> in the more preacher language, condemned if I do and condemned if I don't. You ever felt that in your life? No matter what I do, it's a hard thing on both sides of it. Did you like that, Andrew? Andrew liked that. Condemned if I do, condemned if I don't. You ever felt that? Well, she hears good news and it's grace. But what she hears is the best kind of grace of all. God has visited. Isn't that cool? God has visited. And she tells them, listen, listen, God has visited. Sometimes in the Bible, the word that we translate into visited here is used in military terms. It means to in military terms, to assemble people, to get them ready. Sometimes we hear it in the sense of God attending something or visiting something, and every time God is either blessing or punishing. But this time she's heard God has visited, and it's a blessing. How do we know? He's brought grain. And who did he visit? He visited his people. In the place he had given them, he ended the localized famine that he had sent to chastise them. Isn't that cool? Why did God do this? Was it because the nature and the hearts of the people had shifted? No. It's because God is good and he keeps his word. And when people can never seem to get it together to come into his promise, he reiterates his promise and brings people back into it. What's he bring? He brings bread, man. He brings bread. The only thing would have made this better if it had said this. I heard that God visited his people and brought bread and butter. And then this story would have been complete. But you see, he's saying, I have visited my people in their place and I've blessed them. And Naomi gets that word where? In the fields of Moab. So now, immediately, immediately she's aware that God is moving and working and present. And she's got a decision to make. Do I go there? And if I go there, what's in it for me? What are my, what are my chances? What are my prospects? Well, you see in the very next verse her decision, which brings us to our second big thought. God's grace always deserves a response. Amen? God's grace always deserves a response. Sitting in my office earlier, and uh, I mean, you, you know, illustrations just come to you. You don't have to look for them. I, I did a very tiny grace, a tiny grace for um, Peter and Noah. And Noah quietly comes into my office, so quietly. In fact, I asked him, was he okay? And he hands me a card, and it's a thank you card. You know why? Because read it together. Why did he give me a card? And they had perceived I had done them some unmerited favor. And then I came, later on I came through that door and Peter's holding river and he turns around and I haven't read this one yet, but I have another card. And, and it's either also a thank you or it's hate mail. I didn't want to open it and ruin the street right before the sermon, so 
We're just going to imagine it's gratitude right now. We'll find out later. I notice it's not addressed, so if it's hate mail, I can pretend like, oh, no, this is addressed. I looked at the other side. <laughs> no, it's to me. Wow, it has a duck dog on it. I really need to put this in my pocket. When someone does something nice for you, you should always at least do what? Say thank you, right? Somebody holds a door. Don't tell them you're a fired up woman liber. Just say thanks. You ne never tell them that. The tiniest of courtesies always deserves at least gratitude. Grace deserves a response. Look at verse 7 in your Bibles at how Naomi responds. Naomi gets up and goes and follows a road to where God is working. Let, let me show it to you in, in several verses here, several verses. Well, excuse me, several translations. Look at it in the English Standard Version. It says, so she set out from the place uh, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. You see that? And in the Hebrew, that's, that's three verbs right there. In other words, there's a lot of action here. She has gotten a word of grace. She's gotten a revelation, and now she's responding. She gets up from where she is. She gets to moving, and she's headed to where God has taken her. This is actually, you know, you could preach a week's worth of revival in this verse right here. Whenever God gives you something, you ought to respond. Or maybe let's look at it in the King James Bible. I, I like this one. She went forth. It's not every day you get to go forth. She went forth, and they went. So when you're winting forth, what's the best thing to do? Keep on winting. Uh, and what do you do as you're winting along? You go on the way that God has given you to go. I'm telling you, this is a revival passage right here. This is not about revival for the church, but it is, it is the seeds, the, the foundation for revival for Naomi. She just doesn't know it yet. It's sort of like uh, so when you ask, you know, I've heard women hate this, but men will ask women a lot of times, you know, are you happy? Yeah. Are you okay? And women say, yeah. We say, smile. I've, I've heard that women don't like being told to smile. It's chivalry. Leave us alone. We're trying. Some guys are just jerks, but most of us just want you to be okay. Right? No one has told Naomi's face at this point. How do I know? Because I've read the story. <laughs> She's like, I'm going. I heard God is doing something. I'm headed that way. Are you happy about it? No, just call me bitter. That's how I feel. Yeah, that's her voice. Yeah, she's, she's, uh, she's had a lot of hookah. Um, anyway, <laughs> you know, it's Eastern people, man. I'm just doing the best I can. Or, or look at this in the, in, the, in the Christian Standard Bible. I think this is interesting. She left. You know, that's repentance. Exactly. I'm done with this place. Somebody in this room, God is going to use Ruth to call you out of this place you've been living in. And you ain't going to get out of it until you get out of it. You got to get up. You got to leave that place. And you got to travel along a road not prescribed by your pleasures, your flesh, your past. It, it might even be an old road, but it's going to lead you to a new place, even if it's an old place. Where is she going? She's going back home. It's leading back. So we keep looking for new stuff. We just need to get in contact with the old God, the ancient of the days. Or maybe from Eugene Peterson's The Message. I like this. 
So she started out. So she left, but it was just a start. She was on the road back. Isn't that cool? On the road back to the land. But she had to start. Somebody's start is going to come through the book of Ruth. But it's going to happen because you get up. And it's going to happen because you don't let go. And it's going to happen because you make it to where God is sending you. God's grace always deserves a response. Thirdly, go ahead and say it. Remember what you're supposed to say right here? Psych. God's grace creates opportunity and conflict. Last night, I, I, I want to take all the credit uh, uh, for this, but care babysitted Daniel. Babysat. I don't think she sat on him, but she was there with him. And she was there with him for some hours, I think, three or four hours. But, you know, I take credit for the whole thing because I brought her dinner. Uh, yeah, amen, amen, All right? And it was funny. After we ate dinner, uh, Daniel, he had uh, this, he's got this little drum, and uh, it came with all these instruments. And what's cool is they all fit inside the drum, and I just think it's neat. And, uh, you know, apparently, you know, I don't know if y'all knew this about toddlers, but they want what you have. And if you get two toddlers together, they only want what's in someone else's hand. So if I had the little trumpet uh, and he had the, the rattle and the other thing, he, he wanted what was in my hand, right? Because that's what toddlers do. But guess what toddlers don't want to do? They don't want to let go of what they have, but they also want what you have, right? If you've never seen it, you've never babysat a child, right? I was watching a dog the other, th other day at, at Greg White's shop, and he wanted a stick. And he wanted to pick the stick up, but he had a stick in his mouth, and he would not let the stick down to get the stick, and he was just really frustrated. He even shook his head one time. I was like, you, you know, he speaks English, I think, you know, but I said, you dumb dog, let go of the stick, and you can pick up the stick. But he wouldn't let go of the stick. Whenever we get a word from God, it's usually going to be to lay hold to something that God has for us. But the terrifying thing is, if I let go of that, will I lose it? That's why it's an opportunity, but it creates a conflict. So I'd like to unfold what this opportunity and this conflict looks like through the rest of this passage as we see three very short conversations. Conversation number one, Naomi speaks to Orpah and Ruth. And let's characterize this conversation like this. Girls, go where there's hope. Go back to the scriptures. Look at verses 8 through 10. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go. Y'all go back to your mama's house if you'll allow my paraphrase. And may the Lord deal has said with you, kindly with you. May, may his kindness be upon you, which is a big deal. It's an awesome prayer. May he deal kindly with you just like you've dealt with me and my family. May the Lord grant you rest in your husband's house. In other words, if you would allow my, my, my own rendering, it's not even a paraphrase, it's a dramatization I would say Naomi was sort of saying this. Go back to where you have hope in this world. We have rules in place where we live that may not allow you to have hope in this world, but only in the next. Go to where you came from, and I pray God deals kindly with you and gives you a husband and a home and a rest from all these troubles. Now, y'all go on back to your mama. Y'all come in and give me a hug and some sugar and go on back. 
But what she prays is huge. She invokes the name of God, the God of Israel. She assumes in her, in her wishes for them that God is willing to be personally involved in their lives. And she works from the assumption that the women will reap what they've sown. They've been kind. She works from the assumption God's going to be kind to you. It's a big-time prayer. But they knew, they knew that what Naomi was resigning herself to was poverty and loneliness. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren, no support system, system just bread and God. And perhaps his mercy through his people, if they can find some way to obey his law. And so what do they do? They commence to hugging and a squalling. What the Bible says, says they, they wept. <laughs> they, they grabbed hold of her and started weeping. It's almost like Naomi is saying, I hope in God for eternity, but I can't see how any good is going to happen in my life until eternity, and I don't want y'all to be in this cosmic tragedy with me. I'd rather you go back somewhere where you can, you can at least hope in both, because I don't see it. Could they possibly know God is using all of this grief to create the garden from which the Christ, the tender root of Jesse, would spring up? No, no. They were just sunk in despair. Could they see that God was creating the parameters for prophecy, which their lives would be the checkpoints for? No, they were hung up in despair. Could they see that God was tenderly caring for them and was already preparing someone else in some place else to do something else that they didn't even have on their radar? No, because they were sunk in grief. They could not consider the sovereignty of God. And say, so Naomi, drowning in her pain, says, I can't see hope. Get away from me. I got eternity, but nothing here. Let me just ask you guys before I proceed. You ever felt like that? I got a little bit of a vision of heaven. I got a big desire for heaven, but I don't see nothing between here and there. It's almost generous in her tender care of these daughters-in-law to say, y'all just get away from me. And it's very generous of these daughters-in-law to go, we ain't going to do it. So conversation number two, again, Naomi to Orpah and to Ruth. And maybe we could characterize this conversation like this. Girls, listen to logic. And she breaks loose some big-time logic on them. I mean, you guys heard it. I, 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 I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you. She says, listen, listen, listen. Girls, girls. If I were to right now today have a husband and tomorrow I was pregnant, it would take a long time to grow up a van for you. But what she says in the Hebrew is actually, a, she, she uses a word for the womb that is three words used for the womb in the whole Bible. And this is a very unusual word. She actually says, in my guts. And it's like an entendre. She's saying, I can't, I can't. I physically, biologically can't. And also, I can't. I can't go through this anymore. I don't have it in me. Even if I had a husband, even if I could get pregnant, I don't have it in me. I wouldn't want it. 
I don't, I don't want another man. I don't want a kid. She's like, and would you wait? Girls, would you wait? Would you wait for me to grow up some men children, assuming I'll have men children, even though I can't have men children? So if you look at verse 14, it's funny. <laughs> then they lifted up their voices and wept again. I get an image of them on this journey, you know. And I don't know, they've stopped. They've stopped uh, somewhere along the way for fish and chips, you know. And they're having these heartbreaking conversations along the way, and this is another one. And every conversation is filled with tears. It's terrible to go back. It's terrible to go forward. Naomi wants to give them the mercy of releasing them. They want to give her the blessing of staying with them. They're terrorized by the thoughts of going forward. They're grieved at the thoughts of looking back. And she cuts them loose. And before you think bad of Orpah, all she does is what's logical. She just does what's logical. After this second heartfelt appeal, she's like, okay, bye. Naomi has basically asserted that her body and her emotions are done. She gives a very reasoned case, more hugging, more squalling, and Orpah goes. And she's gone up the road. She's listened to the logic. Orpah leaves. Did you notice what Ruth does? Ruth clings to her. It's, it's sort of funny if you just look a little ahead in verse 15. She says, look, your sister-in-law has gone ahead. I mean, the, the language here is, I mean, she's hung around a while. Has it been another day? Has it been an hour? Did they cry and then hug and sit in silence for an hour? We don't really know, but some time has passed. Orpah's down the road. She goes, look, girl, your sister's down the road. So you get this third conversation, which is just Ruth to Naomi. And I've characterized this one by a quote from O Brother, Where Art Thou? It's like Ruth says, I've spoken my piece and counted to three. I ain't going anywhere. I'm not telling you to go watch a movie because <laughs> there's some flowery language in it. But if you, if you watch a movie, it's a, it's a modern retelling of Homer's Odyssey. And he, he, he breaks out of prison under the pretense with these two guys that he's going to make them rich by going to recover a treasure. One of my favorite parts is when they turn in a dark movie theater and he goes, do not seek the treasure. But there was no treasure and they have to face that. To him, he wanted to win his wife back. She, they had five daughters together and he had heard his wife was engaged. And if you really pay attention, it's a fantastic story of romance told in very desperate terms. My second favorite scene, I didn't tell you that, that's my favorite moment. My second favorite scene is when this guy gets in a fist fight in the store with her, his wife's fiance, with his wife's fiance. Yeah, I said that right. This is only a story that could be told through white trash terms. <laughs> and his wife's fiance beats him up. They get captured by the KKK. You can't, I mean, But he wins her back. He wins his wife back. And he's saying, like, great, we'll, you know, we'll renew our vows. And, and uh, she's like, I want my ring. And uh, 
He says, what's wrong with that ring? It came from so-and-so. I don't want that. I want the ring you gave me. And he says, well, it's in the roll-top desk or the shiffer robe or something. And, and that's 20 miles away, and they're going to flood that place in the morning. And she says, stops and says, I've spoken my piece and counted to three. And this is where he literally in the movie just starts cussing. He says, oh, i got to go back and get this ring. Because he knows it's not any change in her mind. Ruth gives that sort of emotional level speech. Woman, I'm with you. I'm with your people. I'm in your place. I'm going to stay there till I die. And you got to love verse 18. Naomi basically says, I see she's pretty serious, so I'm going to leave it alone. The next time we stop and eat a pimento cheese sandwich, I'm just going to ask her if she wants some pepper and keep my mouth shut. This speech is absolutely how I know that I know that I know that Ruth is a converted, saved sinner. You know how I know it? Because she says, no matter what, I'm not going back, I'm only going forward. I'm only going in covenant direction. I'm only going with God. I may never have a husband. I may wind up being an impoverished servant in your household, whatever it might be, forever. But I'm loosening myself from my native identity. I'm taking up a new identity amongst people that I don't even know. I'm going this way. Some of the reason we don't get along with the Lord in our life is because we keep thinking we're holding on to a passport for eternity while we run around in funeral clothes. That's how I know Ruth is saved. Her conversion was real. Out of the darkness and faithlessness of God's people, God steps outside of his covenant people and brings someone into the covenant. You know what he shows them? Darkness is not the problem. I can work past darkness. It's you that's the problem. It's your heart that's the problem. And he grabs hold of one. An outsider becomes an insider. I love that part. I love that part. She gets personal faith, but has community desire. You, I'm with you, and I'm with your people. I'm in your house. Ruth's story reminds me to never underestimate how far God will go to save someone, nor, nor how far God will take the saved. Just never underestimate either one. And also, this, this passage, this story reminds me to, to have a lot of hope in world missions. What does it look like to go to a foreign peoples, foreign places, different cultures? Can God work in the midst of all that? Absolutely. Here as he grows this garden, he's already preparing the son of Rahab. Hello. She was a prostitute in Jericho, the city they walked around and it fell down. And God has called her out. And already, Ruth, a foreign woman, is being called to be this lady's daughter-in-law. They had a V8. This is an amazing story. Look at how our God works. We look across our town, and there are different people than us. God makes outsiders, insiders all the time. We look across our world and say, is it any use to take the gospel to these places? Absolutely. If God can work... Salvation in the middle of rebellion and tragedy through Elimelech's family, what would he do if we just sweetly and intentionally took the gospel to the world? There's no telling. 
But don't forget, out of all these things we can learn, the main point was that God was creating a garden in Israel from which a tender root of Jesse would spring up. So, brothers and sisters, these conversations show us what it's like to come to the narrow gate of truth and what it's like to come through the harrowing gate of decision. Orpah walks away. Ruth walks in. She walks in saying it's going to be costly, but it's going to be worth it. Grace demands a response. And as they get a revelation, a word from God, that something is shifted in Bethlehem, Judah, Naomi says, I got to go. And as she begs her daughters to turn back and not go with her, Orpah says, y'all go ahead. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. Grace demands a response. How about you today? Can you see the giant ray of hope that Christ gives his people? Can, can you say, man, I, I, see, I see this one thing that God has visited us. I see that he came in the flesh, fully God, fully man. He was righteous and holy and true. He, grace, visited us. And I see that he died on a cruel cross. He defeated mean death. He rose from the grave. He was seen of many witnesses. He gave promises. He ascended. He sent the Spirit. And he says, I'm coming back. And I feel encompassed in this world like Christian comfort is shrink shrinking every day. But my ray of hope is Jesus, and he shines brighter in the dark. Why do preachers froth at the mouth to preach Jesus? Because God has visited his people, and grace demands a response. He's our hope. He's our only hope. Every other minor hope we have is connected to him. That he'll redeem all of the brokenness. That he'll fix the whole entire cosmos. That he'll reconcile all things to himself. He'll smash the works of Satan. Everything is tied to Christ. He's the, he's the preeminent figure in all of our histories. And what was God doing in little old Ruth's life? Concocting the womb of glory. <laughs> what? Everywhere I look, I see more proof to trust him. And the light gets bigger. The darkness closes in, but the light gets bigger. Do you have this hope in Jesus today? Maybe... Maybe this is your Ruthian moment. Everything has been brought together for you to see that God is for you. He's trustworthy. He's worth taking hold to no matter what you have to let go of. Maybe you see the grace opportunity and you're willing to trust God in the conflict. I don't know your salvation story, but I know this. The Bible says if you believe on the Lord Jesus and receive him, you will be made a son and daughter of God. And adopted into his family means he never lets go of you. He never lets go. Do you know him today?
Have you believed on him by faith? Are you putting your big crises against his big truth? As we sing together in just a moment, I'm going to trust you to respond to God. I'm going to trust you, whether you need to sit in your seat or kneel at the altar, altar whether you, you need to grab hold to your spouse or a friend and pray together, whether you need to confess your sins to someone, or, 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 or whether you, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to say, here I am. I, I want all of you. Take all of me and put me on the road. Put me on the road. Back to the home that I long for that I've never seen. Put me on the road. You respond. You know why? Because grace demands a response. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share from your word. In spite of my weaknesses, in the face of my weaknesses, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. There are some in this room that feel the loss and despair of life, that feel the encroachment of darkness, and they need to be reminded of hope in Christ. There are others in this room who have been trudging faithfully along in recent days, and they just need to be spurred on. There may be someone who is yet to surrender their lives to you. I pray, God, you would give them the gift of faith and help them see to deposit it in Christ. Let us respond in singing, in praying, in surrender, in agreement. Let us respond. In Jesus we pray. Amen.